0: You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I am Kenny Ortiz coming at you from the great metropolis of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Theology theology for the rest of us. So glad to have you. This is episode 271 and I'm going to answer the question, what is apologetics? And I'm going to dive into uh, the two types of apologetics that exist, classical apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. Uh, This may seem pretty obvious to some people. I've alluded quite a bit to apologetics over the course of the podcast, especially over the last 20 episodes or so. Um, But I have corresponded with a handful of people recently uh, that have basically asked questions that lead me to believe that There are probably some Christians out there that don't understand what the word apologetics really means or don't understand the field of apologetics as a whole. So I figured I would take some time to to address that here in this episode of the podcast. Hey, before I get to the content, just a quick reminder of the importance of ratings and reviews. If you love the podcast, it's been a help to you. Please do me a huge favor. Leave a five-star rating. Leave a great review. Tell the world you love the podcast. Those are a really, really big help to the show. And also, if you've never done this, uh, I'd encourage you to share uh, an episode, maybe this episode or a different episode of the podcast you really like, um, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. If you could help get the word out That's a big, big help. Thank you in advance. All right, let's get to the topic at hand, the concept of apologetics. Now, whenever we say the word apologetics, sometimes people think of the word apology and that somehow the word apologetics or the the concept of apologetics is someone who is giving an apology for something, someone who is saying sorry for something or being regretful for something in, in one way or another and that's not exactly what the word apologetic means, or it's not exactly what an apologist is doing. An apologist is not someone who's offering an apology. It is true the word apology and the word apologetics definitely shares a common root word and some history and and epistemology, but they they mean different things. They are dis, they are very distinct in a lot of ways. When someone is engaging in apologetics, they are giving an apologetic. And what the word apologetic literally means is a defense of something. When you're giving someone an apologetic, you are in, F, in essence giving them a reason to believe something, a reason to embrace something, or or you're giving them credible reasoning to embrace something that you think they ought to embrace, embrace uh, that you're asserting. Uh, Sometimes when people talk about being apologetic, that means they are regretful for something and they're looking to be forgiven, that they're wanting you to bring justification. They're wanting you to give credibility to their feelings. And so certainly that seemingly has some Overlap to the word apologetic. When we are giving an apologetic, when an apologist is defending something, they are giving you a reason for you to give credence, for you to give credibility to what they are saying. In essence, an apologist is a defender. And an apologist for the Christian faith is, in essence, a defender of the Christian faith. When I am being an apologist, I am explaining to you why you ought to believe the Christian faith that I am putting forth or I am giving you reasons to embrace elements of the Christian worldview. Anyone who seeks to share their faith, to testify about what God has done in their life and to give other people a reason to believe, in that moment, that person is an apologist. Now, some people do this on a kind of a larger scale or even a vocational, professional scale, and others of us maybe do it on a much smaller scale. Uh, There are a lot of famous apologists throughout church history, and there are several famous apologists uh, living in our world today. Men like Ravi Zachariah, a very famous, well-known apologist. People like uh, William Lane Craig. People like Hugh Ross. People like Ken Ham. People like Jack Collins. You know, there are many people out there that are serving as apologists. Uh, Greg Kokel, You know, there are many different authors and writers people that are engaging in apologetics. And there are a lot of pastors and theologians and philosophers that also sometimes, you know, go into the realm of apologetics. Uh, I myself don't necessarily view myself as an apologist, but there's no doubt there are many times where I tread quite a bit into the realm of apologetics. And some people would say that anytime you're sharing bits of theology or teaching theology, you are, in essence, giving people a reason to believe whatever particular doctrine you're asserting. So in essence, teaching theology may always be a form of apologetics. But when we're talking about apologetics, typically what we're talking about is giving people who are non-believers a reason to believe the Christian faith or giving believers reasons why their faith is valid and strong and why they should be confident in the faith they have already embraced. Now, in the world of apologetics, there are two primary camps or two primary approaches to the world of apologetics. Uh, you have what we now call classical apologetics. Obviously, it wasn't always called that, but it is now called classical apologetics. And we have a different style of apologetics known as Presuppositional apologetics. I think both forms of apologetics have great value. I tend to lean more toward presuppositional apologetics, but I think both have great value in the life of the believer and in the ministry of an apologist. Let me explain. The, the two types of apologetics very quickly. Classical apologetics is simply what you might think of at first when we first mentioned the term apologetics. When I talk about giving people reasons to believe and defending the faith, you may think about evidences, right? People may give evidences for a creator. I've done this actually quite a bit throughout the course of the last 20 to 25 episodes on the podcast where I've talked about the the flaws Uh, in the Darwinian worldview, when I've talked about the flaws in the philosophy of naturalism and some of the other evolutionary theories that that have been promoted. And when I give evidences for a creator that I think that there is no doubt an intelligent designer, a creator, that the fine-tuning argument uh, when we talk about those sorts of things, when we talk about the Kalam cosmological argument uh, and the, the idea that the universe has a beginning, uh, these are bits of evidences that people may want to give to prove there is a god, And there are various other evidences. There are evidences that come from the world of science. There are evidences that come from the world of ethics. There are evidences that come from the world of philosophy and logic and even the world of rhetoric. There are lots of pieces of evidence that may be given whenever you're trying to defend the faith. In fact, you may sometimes hear people say things like, well, whenever you're talking to an atheist or you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, you can't use the Bible or theology or doctrine because they don't believe the Bible, they don't believe those things. You need to give them evidences outside of the Bible before people are willing to listen. That's sort of an ideology that persist amongst many evangelical Christians. The idea that you got to bring pieces of evidence that are neutral or outside of the Bible to convince people that God even exists, and then you need to give people evidences for the Bible before you can ever even use the Bible. That's sort of the, the classical apologetic approach, and, and that in this approach, you're going to try to give people evidences for the existence of a God. You're going to try to give people... Um, historical evidences for the resurrection. You're trying to give people uh, historical evidences and and textual criticism evidences for why we believe the Bible is reliable and trustworthy and ought to be viewed as authoritative. Right? You're going to be using pieces of evidences that are extra biblical or outside of Scripture directly to quote-unquote prove the Bible and prove the existence of God and then you're going to actually go to the Bible once they've embraced the Bible or at least see it as credible to some extent, and then use that to sort of share your faith, your thoughts on faith, your your doctrine, your theology, and your belief on how someone can be reconciled unto God. That is sort of the classical apologetic approach. And no doubt, sometimes whenever I talk to people about this, they're like, there's a different approach? Like, what do you mean there's, there's, there's two approaches? We figured that's what apologetics is. There's actually a different approach to apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. And as I mentioned, I give presuppositional apologetics a lot of uh, credence because presuppositional apologetics is the idea that in your apologetic conversation, rather than giving evidences, you focus on poking holes in the presuppositions or in the, the, the worldview that people come to the table. Uh, the reality is the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, is the only worldview that is coherent and consistent. Every other worldview has major flaws. Every other worldview falls apart. Every other worldview eventually has massive illogical elements to it that, that make it inco- inconsistent and incoherent and irrational. That no, no person who is who is wise and rational and wanting to be consistent and sensible should embrace any worldview other than the biblical Christian worldview because it's the only worldview that is complete top to bottom. Now, there may be someone listening to this that think that's an absolutely absurd statement for me to make, but it is what I believe to be true. And I believe that when you're having conversations with people, instead of giving them evidence, you actually can begin to expose in them and help them see how their worldview has some significant flaws to it, and typically has some presupposition that they're bringing to the table that is either completely irrational or is actually dependent on the Christian worldview. If you don't know what a presupposition is, basically this is a, a an assumption that someone has already made about certain things that they come to the conversation with. And I think this is important to note and to, th- to think about Because whenever you're giving evidence, when you're doing classical apologetics and you're giving evidence, sometimes we're assuming that people are going to be neutral. If you give evidence for the historical resurrection or historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, you're assuming that people are going to actually listen to it and rationally examine it. But the reality is people are coming to the table with tremendous presuppositions, meaning they have these preconceived notions, they already have certain beliefs already built into their brain. They already have certain assumptions and thoughts and biases and subjectivities. So when they come to the table and they're evaluating the evidence you're putting, you're bringing forth, they're not being unbiased. They're not being objective. Every human is completely subjective. So before you ever present evidence, I think it's important to expose the subjectivity that people have, because it will show them how flawed they're being when they are actually examining the evidence. You know, I think the evidence for a creator and intelligent designer is overwhelming, but there are people who look at the evidence and they say, oh, no, that's not strong. But it's because they have some presupposition. They have some preconceived notion about God or about religious ideology or about religious people. They have preconceived notions about the world. They have assumptions about the world basically exclude their ability to completely be rational and completely be objective whenever observing and examining and assessing any evidence you may bring forth. So presuppositional apologetics focuses on basically having conversations with people, listening to what they say, and basically gently and kindly but boldly pointing out the folly, the foolishness, the, the the presuppositions that are incoherent in their own worldview. Let me give you a quick example. If if someone comes to you and says something like, I don't believe in a God because there's so much evil in the world. And, you know, I can't believe that there's a God who would allow evil in the world. I would say to this person, well, I disagree with your assertion. Obviously, we have different conclusions. However, before I answer the question as to why there's evil in the world, let me ask you this. By what measure is anything evil? If you're an atheist, and you don't believe in a god. The reality is, by, by your worldview, nothing is evil, right? I, I'm just a chemical accident, right? Me, Kenny Ortiz, I'm nothing more than, than, a, than the the result of random accidental things that took place, you know, in in the world. I am nothing more than a cosmic accident or a genetic evolutionary accident. What makes something I do evil or not evil? It's just an accident. Right, like, like when I spill almond milk on the counter on my uh, in my kitchen, like I did this morning when I was pouring my my cereal. Right, when I have almond milk spilled, that was an accident, and then I wipe it up. I eradicate the accident. Are you telling me I'm evil for doing that? Well, right, no, because it's one accident, just cleaning up another accident. When you said Kenny, that's silly. Well, you're a human being. Humans have more value. Well, says who? I mean, in your worldview, humans are nothing more than an accident. No more than than. Uh, you know, rearranged pond scum. You're nothing more than, than uh, you know, no more value, valuable than a grasshopper, right? You're no more valuable than the blades of grass. You're no more valuable than the bacteria that's in a river, right? They, they, no, no one is of any more value than anything else. In fact, in your worldview, Mister Atheist, nothing is of any value because everything is an accident. Now, I understand. I do believe that humans have value, right? If someone says to you, "Well, humans have value," I agree. Humans do have value. However, I have a certain, I have a particular reason for why I believe that. I believe humans have value because the Bible says that God made humans. In his own image, that God indwelled his own characteristics in human beings, which makes us special and precious and unique. And we have tremendous value. I agree. However, why do you have a belief that humans have value? You have a presupposition that humans have value. But why do you have this presupposition, Mr. Atheist? Why do you believe that humans are valuable? Because your worldview tells me that humans are nothing more than an accident. No more value than a dead leaf that falls out of a tree. Why would it be wrong for humans to kill other humans? Why would it be wrong to murder? Why would it be wrong to do anything evil? In fact, how do you define evil? By what standard? What's considered evil? What's not considered evil? You have a presupposition that evil even exists. But in your worldview, Mr. Atheist, there's no such thing as evil because everything is just an accident. Is it evil when a, when a tiger kills a you know, uh, its prey in the, out in the wild or a lion you know, in Africa kills a gazelle? Is that evil? It's just one creature that's an evolutionary accident killing another creature that is also an evolutionary accident. We're all nothing more than cosmic, genetic, evolutionary accidents. We're here by accident. No one created us. There's no purpose. There's no intentionality. None of us have value. So it doesn't matter. Like Nothing can be evil. It doesn't matter what we do. If one person kills another person, that's not evil. It's just one accident wiping up another accident. Now, in my worldview, Mr. Atheist, I do believe in right and wrong. I do believe in evil, but that's because I believe the Bible. And the Bible tells us that certain things are evil and certain things are wrong based on the character and nature of God. Anything that's in line with, with representing God and his character and his nature and anything that's in, in the realms of God's ideal design for humanity is righteous and appropriate. Anything outside of those things is sinful and evil and wrong. Mr. Atheist, you see, in my worldview, that question makes sense but Mister Atheist, in your worldview, that question is actually absolutely absurd. Can you help me understand why you believe that? And you, you've been to have conversations with people, and every time they bring up an objection about God, you can say to them, "Well, I disagree with your assessment." However, before I even give you an answer, do you realize? Do you realize the absurdity of what you're saying? That's in essence what I want to do. I want to point out the fact that their worldview. Has massive logical flaws. One of the things you want to be doing when you're having these types of conversations is making it very clear that you believe in the Bible, that you believe the Bible's authoritative, and I would encourage you to bring the Bible into the conversation. So many people basically don't use the Bible. They're having a conversation w- with someone who doesn't believe the Bible and they say, "Well, I don't believe in your book." Well, that's fine. I do. And 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 Mr. Atheist, or Mr. You know, Mr. Secular Worldview. I want to make it very clear to you, I believe my worldview is consistent because the Bible says this, 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 or this, right? Every time I have an opportunity, I want to bring some truth from the scripture and bring it in. And even if he doesn't believe in the Bible, I believe the Bible has power. It is supernatural. It is living and active, as Hebrews 4 tells us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And if I bring the truth of the Bible, if I'm reading from the Bible and bringing concepts from the word of God into the conversation, whether he believes the Bible or not, those words are going to penetrate his soul. They're going to convict his soul. They're going to bring about paradigm change. The bringing forth the word of God transforms people. Even if they don't believe in the word of God, it is powerful in their life. So when someone tells you, don't believe the Bible, don't bring up the Bible, you should not listen to their advice. You should still bring the Bible into the conversation and concepts from the scriptures into the conversation because the Holy Spirit will supernaturally use that to, to, to soften their hearts, convict their hearts, expose the, the the flaws in their own worldview, and the Holy Spirit will utilize that to woo them unto Himself. Remember, people don't get saved because you convince them. People get saved because the Holy Spirit has has transformed their hearts and wooed them unto Himself. You are just the the the, the instrument that God can use. So don't put away your Bible. Don't put away your sword. Uh, I heard a video once from a really well-known pastor, seminary president, author, a man by the name of Vody Bachum. It's a video where he talks about these two knights that are on the road, and one knight comes up to the next knight and he says, "I don't believe in your sword." And the knight just puts it away, just puts his knife, his sword back in the in the in his sheath and just says, "Okay, I won't use my sword in this fight since you don't believe in it. Well, that's ridiculous, right? Votie says, says that would be so silly. You would never do no knight would do that. What would a knight do if if two knights are on the road and they both have their swords out and one knight says to the other, I don't believe in your sword. Well, the, the other knight would say, well, that's fine. You don't have to believe in it. And that knight would take his sword and cut it and once he's been cut then he'll start believing right that's sort of what Bodhi is saying we want to do that we want to take our bible we want to cut people with it now we want to do it gently and kindly and graciously and diplomat- diplomatically and, and 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 we want to be we want to be extremely uh, uh gentle with people as we approach but we want to be very clear we want to be assertive we want to be bold and when people say irrational silly foolish things. We want to use the Bible and the concepts in the Word of God to clearly expose those things, to cut those things out, and and allow the Holy Spirit to use those sort of moments to transform that person and bring them unto himself. That's what the power of the Word of God can do. Don't put away your sword. Utilize it. So those are the two types of apologetics, classical and and presuppositional. I think both can be very helpful at times. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I think presuppositional apologetics are helpful in some, some cases. Classical apologetics are helpful in other cases. In most cases... I think I want to start with presuppositional apologetics to some extent, and then I want to allow that to then wade in the conversations where I begin to bring in some of the classical components of, of apologetics, some of the classical pieces of evidences um, For God. But long before I want to get to data or scientific facts or archaeological evidences or historical evidences and logical understanding and things of that nature, long before I get to textual criticisms and any other bits of information that I may bring to the table in the world of apologetics, before I ever do that, I want to clearly share the gospel. I want want people to clearly know what I believe, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he came to this planet, that he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, and if you believe in Christ, you can be saved. If you put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, you will be saved. That is the truth that I believe. That is the truth that I want people to embrace. I want people to know that long before I give them any data about intelligent design or the fine-tuning argument. Before I have a conversation about evolution or naturalism or any other thing that may come up in apologetics, I want to make clear to people what I believe. That Jesus Christ rose from, the, died for their sins, rose from the dead, and you can be saved through faith. That's what I want them to know. Then... What I want to do is I want to have conversations where I expose people's foolish ideologies. Again, in a kind, gentle manner, but I boldly and clearly expose the inconsistencies and the irrational elements and components that exist within their own ideologies, within within their old within their own worldviews. And I want to show them how the Christian worldview is the only worldview that makes any sense. The Christian worldview is the only one that is completely coherent because it is based on the Bible, which is the inspired authoritative word of God without error and that we can stake our souls on what the word of God has to say. And then... I want to go to classical apologetics and bring some of those evidences and scientific facts and historical facts in, but that's the, that's the, the, the goal. I want to, first, I want to share the gospel. Here's clearly what I believe. Number two, I want to do presuppositional apologetics. I want to expose in you the presuppositions you have that you don't even realize that are in inco- that are inconsistent, irrational, or they borrow from my worldview and they don't make sense in your own worldview. And then thirdly, I want to then potentially wait in the conversations about uh, evidences that prove that there is indeed a God, um, and prove that the resurrection is real, that prove that the Bible is you know is authentic and hasn't been changed over the course of the centuries uh, from the first century on, all those sorts of bits of data and bits of of evidences that I want to bring up in the world in the conversations of apologetics. All of those are valuable, but I just want to make sure that I don't abandon um, the Bible and the truths of the Word of God, and I want to make sure that I'm not afraid to call people out. I don't want to assume people are going to be neutral and objective because the reality is I know for sure that they're actually not going to be neutral or objective. They're going to be very biased, very subjective, in some cases hostile, and I want to boldly call that out and call people to repentance using the truths I know in the Word of God. That is, in essence, presuppositional Apologetics. Apologetics is extremely important. I would encourage all Christians to study and read and to be ready, as as the Apostle Peter says, to give a defense for the hope you have. We should always be ready to defend the faith, to fight for the faith, to call out the flawed ideologies and philosophies that exist, and be an apologist and defender for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his gospel. I'd encourage you, be an apologist, engage in apologetics. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Hope it was helpful and insightful. If you have a question or a topic that you want me to address in a future episode of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The best email address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. K-E-N-N-E-T-H O-R-T-I-Z. Hey, if you haven't been to our website recently, Theology for the I'd encourage you to head over there immediately. We've got great resources for many different apologists, theologians, philosophers, authors, lots of great resources to help you out as you engage in apologetics. Again, theology for the rest of dot com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been theology for the rest of us.